Myself here. <clears throat> Good morning. Welcome to Emmanuel Bible Church. We are thankful that you are here to worship on this Lord's Day. And um, we, um, we are glad that you are here not just to, to sing songs that affirm God's goodness to us, that indeed Christ will hold us fast, um, but that that bleeds into and out of and is incorporated with God's sovereignty over us even when everything seems to be going wrong. And uh, that is uh, kind of the theme of our study of the book of Job. <clears throat> if you turn to Job, we continue in our study of, uh, of this uh, magnificent book. And as I said before, probably most of what we know of Job happens just in the first two chapters. I mean, Job is a good guy, lives a clean life, God blesses him. And then lo and behold, all this bad stuff the devil does, causes him all these kind of terrors and difficulties. His wife is mean to him, and then his friends accuse him of stuff. And at the end, God blesses him, renews everything, and the, the end of the story is better than the beginning. And if we're not careful, we will reduce what is one of the most valuable books of the Scriptures to simply a moralistic uh, fable about a theoretical good man who suffered greatly, but then in the end, because he was willing to suffer greatly, he got great rewards in this life. And we'd miss the entirety of the purpose of the book of Job. All that we know about the book of Job, generally, we could cover, yes, in two chapters. So why are there so many chapters? Because there's such nuance to the discussion of human suffering. How can humans suffer so? How can good humans, followers of God, Christians, people committed to the things of the Lord, how can good people suffer so much if there is a good and powerful God? That's the point. That's the point. And it's not so much that Job gives us every answer to why you might be going through some difficult time this moment or why you will go through some suffering in the days ahead. He doesn't give us some simplistic answer. Oh yeah, God's got it. Don't worry. You know, um, be happy. Right? That great theology. Don't worry. Be happy. I mean, that's just pure, just mere optimism. That's wishful thinking. The question is, is there an anchor? Is there a rock upon which we might establish ourselves so that regardless of what waves should come, regardless of what trials and difficulties and suffering may come, we find ourselves secure in a God that will indeed hold us fast. That's, um, that's our study this morning um, as we continue in the book of Job. And I know I've been going a lot slower than I initially planned to do, but we are still in chapter one of the book of Job and we're... Um, Lord willing, we're going to be trying to look at uh, um, starting in uh, verse 13 all the way through chapter 2, verse 10. And uh, I'll be honest with you, it's highly unlikely. I've brought more than double the number of pages of notes that I would normally have for a regular Sunday, and I am constantly told that I go too long on those. So we will do the best we can, and, uh, but we will stop if, the, if, if time is... Uh, uh, limits us, but nevertheless, we will look to what the scriptures would want to reveal to us about human suffering and about the God who is sovereign and good 
in the background of all things that we experience. So why don't we read our scriptures first? I'll say a few words and we'll kind of try to dive right in. Back up all the way to verse 6 because I'd like to read from there because we looked at this a couple of weeks ago and kind of set us up the theme of sovereignty and suffering. I realize I'm saying sovereignty and suffering, but our thing says suffering and sovereignty. We'll go with that, right? The theme of suffering and sovereignty, it sets us up from verse 6 all the way through chapter 2, verse 10. And so it might be good for us to hear it once and then come back and unpack this little by little. Starting in Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and says, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another one and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels And took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people. And they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to the scriptures and to this amazing, stark, and difficult passage. Help us, one, to embrace this with faith. A faith that believes your word and takes it for face value. That this is not an epic fable. It is not some designed, um, fantastic story that illustrates a point. This is not a parable. This is a real man living a real life struggling with the the most tragic moment potentially in human history. And yet, he will find his worship of you to be stable, that you are sufficient. And even though he has no answers, he finds you worthy. I pray for the hearts of everyone that calls upon the name of Christ 
within hearing of this message that believes that Jesus has lived that life and died as a sacrificial um, payment for our sins, that each one of us would take soberly this reality that there will be suffering because all human beings will suffer at some point. And it may not be as calamitous as Job's, but we have a reason to trust in a God that loves us and will never forsake us. And that reason was hung on a cross and was raised from the dead as evidence that, that we are loved and forgiven and have an eternal destiny in the presence of our God. Help you, help us place you as a center in the core of how we think through everything in this existence, in this earthly life, so that we would honor you as you deserve, that we would worship you for the great honor and deserving of worship that you are. May you become the main part of this message this morning, that it is about our God and how we look to him and how we understand him as revealed in scripture. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. So, so far in the book of Job, we opened up with Job as a picture of what life should be. In other words, if we want to make a formulaic argument, what should the blessed life look like? It should look like Job's, at least in the first five verses, right? It should look like the blessed man of Psalm 1, that he walks not in the counsel of the wicked, right? Nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Instead, his delight is in God, in the law that God gives him, and he is prosperous in everything. That, that's the equation that we're looking for. I'm a good person. I love the Lord. I follow Jesus Christ. Therefore, every blessing keeps flowing into my life. That's what we kind of want. And Job is intended for all time to crush that. That weird view of, I do good, God gives me many blessings. In a perfect world, yes, that's kind of what we would hope would happen. This is the picture of what life in, in our theory should be, but that is not reality. And so here is a man who existed in the patriarchal period before there was a nation of Israel, before there was the Mosaic Law, and he is a follower of God, a worshiper of God, much like Abraham, and exactly like Abraham, he believes God, and apparently God reckons that to him as righteousness. And as a follower of Yahweh, of God, of the Old Testament, he will worship and honor him regardless of what comes in the course of his life. He is a great man, and the question of everything that will happen to him is, will he still be a good man when his greatness is taken away? Last time we met together, we looked at verses 6 through 12, and we talked about this heavenly council where God calls all the angelic beings, and even Satan himself must appear. And when God speaks to Satan, he specifically, and we said with, with unequivocal clarity, that the scriptures reveal that everything that transpires in Job's life is initiated from God's throne. It's God that says, have you considered my servant Job? It's intentional. He wants Satan to push back on that. He has an intention to use Satan's malice in a way that demonstrates what God already knows. God has affirmed that he is an upright man, that there is no one like him, and that he worships God and he will be faithful to God no matter what. 
He's already affirmed that, and Satan's saying, no, that's just not true, and God knows that it is. And yet he allows the testing of this great man to see if indeed he is a good man, to see if he still loves the Lord. And as we continue in the process, today we're going to be looking at the particulars of some of those things that are the tragedies of his life. Let me give you a short breakdown of, oh, sorry. Got to turn things on, all right? But I, I think this is a, 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 it's a simple way to kind of break down this section. It's really two. It's one is uh, point one. There's unimaginable loss in verses 13 through 19. And then really the man of sorrow is just Job's response to that loss. And then there's unyielding pain. So you go from right, kind of the general, he loses everything that is external to him. In other words, he, his heart is broken by everything that is around him. And then his flesh is in constant and unyielding pain in chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And then the man of affliction is his response to his personal pain. So you go from everything on the outside now to everything here. So, so his, his suffering will be complete. It'll be thorough. It's not just his circumstance. It'll be his very flesh. And so all of that is to be considered in terms of suffering and in terms of God and his sovereignty. Listen, as we continue to explore this, there's a couple things that we have to establish so that we have a, um, we have a right footing. It's like, it's like having the right cleats for the right kind of field, having the right equipment to play that particular sport, or having the right tools for that particular task or skill or surgery or whatever it is. And it is all about how we understand God, His power, and his goodness. Remember we said that, uh, that one of the most famous um, rabbis, uh, Harold Kushner, uh, this is decades ago now, he wrote a New York Times bestseller called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And he was struggling in his own personal life with the loss of his young child. And as he thought this through, he realized that, that what Scripture affirms is that God is powerful and that God is good. And the question was, if he is absolutely powerful... Can he be absolutely good? Or if he's absolutely good, can he be absolutely powerful? Let me put it this way. If God could have prevented his child from dying, absolutely powerful, is he still good if he allows that child to die? If a calamity should take place, right, like an earthquake or a vo volcanic tsunami, and it wipes out an entire village, and God has the power to stop it, can he be absolutely powerful and absolutely good? You see the tension in that, and I think we should all appreciate the tension in that. But the Rabbi Kushner, he decided that when the two things are juxtaposed against one another, he chose to believe that God is absolutely good, absolutely loving, but he's not perfectly and absolutely powerful. That flies in the face of everything that Scripture will teach us about our God. This is what I want to establish with us as we think about who God is throughout the book of Job because many of the arguments are going to argue that God is righteous. God just doesn't do stuff, you know, just out of, the, out of, out of whim like the false gods, and that's true. 
And there'll be many other arguments that is built on who God is and how God responds and how God reacts to human beings and their sinfulness, their righteousness, all of it. We need to understand who is God. And I was, there's two things that we have to understand. One is that whatever God is, he always is. The, the way to understand this, right, is that when we talk about any of God's attributes revealed in Scripture, that he is a holy God, we mean that he is always holy. Not that he puts on holiness occasionally. If we say that he's a loving God, then we mean that he is a loving God at all times. That his love doesn't stop and doesn't turn it on. And sometimes he's loving, sometimes he's not loving. Right? He is always on. I illustrate this especially with young people by talking about uh, superheroes. Right? You can appreciate that. Superheroes are super because they have some power. But there's two categories of superheroes. Those that have to activate turn on or put on some kind of power. Examples like the Hulk or actually Bruce Banner, right? Bruce Banner is a normal dude. I mean, theoretically, if you didn't know and you could kill him quickly enough, he would die just as a regular human being. But once he turns green, when he's mad, right? When the adrenaline flows, then he's the Hulk. His power turns on. Human Torch, same thing. He even has to yell, flame on, which is the most ridiculous idea ever, right? But like, you know, like something's happening, flame on. So I guess if he's underwater, he's dead, right? He activates his power. Tony Stark has to get inside of an Iron Man suit. You get what I mean? They all are something and they have to activate that power versus the individual whose power is always on. That's Superman. Superman, his disguise is Clark Kent. He's not Clark Kent, and occasionally he activates superpowers. He'd be Clark Kent, and if a car accidentally runs into him, right, the car's going to lose. He is, he is Superman. So when you think about it that way, the first thing to understand about any of God's attributes, his perfections, the old theologians used to call it, is that they define him as God, meaning that they are always on. He doesn't stop being part of God and then excellently becomes part of God when it is necessary. He, his attributes are always his attributes. And not only is it always on, they are infinite in their quality. He's not always mostly holy. He is always holy, which means that whatever he does in the course of time, he may bear some patience, but nevertheless, every single sin and act of evil or evil thought must be paid for in full. That's what it means that he is a righteous God. Not that he is righteous sometimes, and then, oh, you believed in Jesus? Then, wink, wink, you get a free pass. Come on in. You get a get-out-of-jail-free card. No. That's why Romans 3 makes it clear that it was necessary for God to send Christ because of our sin. Someone has to pay for my sins, for your sins, in full. Every sin I have committed, any sin that I may commit, and every sin that I will commit in the course of the rest of this earthly existence, has to be paid for in full. Otherwise, he would stop being just, stop being righteous. So it is always on and is on to an infinite degree. There is no greater righteousness 
than God's righteousness. There's no whole greater holiness than God's holiness. There is no greater goodness than God's goodness. And our willingness to embrace that or not is an issue of us. It's not an issue of Him. And if you start to let that seep into your soul and you contemplate that, I think the book of Job unpacks for you in ways that are so helpful. But if you are, as most of us are by nature and, and, and by our, our kind of self-centered, right, selfish and persistently, um, you know, self-desirous to see good for ourselves. If we look at everything from the perspective of what is best for me in the moment, then we'll see God's goodness to be kind of wavering, that his power must be kind of wavering. Instead of believing that God knows exactly what he's doing, he's intending what he's, he's done, and that his hand is in everything with great purpose for us. See, if we embrace a God that is that great, that he is always God, and every attribute of him is infinite and full to the degree that it must be the definition of God himself to be as God is, then what happens is that it, it, it infuses itself to all of our lives. Even in the face of tragedy and pain, if we could keep this theological truth in mind, we discover that that becomes the ground that keeps us from losing our sanity. And for Job, who's about to have the worst day maybe in human history, it is the only reason why he does not simply lose his mind. Because he knows his God. He embraces the fullness of who God is and knows who he is as a creature looking towards the creation. By sovereignty, because that's kind of one of the main issues here, we mean that God exercises his infinite power with absolute control. He does as he pleases, when he pleases, without challenge or rival. And everything that he does, right, comes to pass. But also, that whatever happens in the course of our lives, that has been God's sovereign plan and purpose as well. For good, for momentary bad, God has designed it all. We'll talk about that as we go along, but I think that's significant. So we pick up the story again after this heavenly council where Satan has said, hey God, he's only good to you because you're good to him. Take away all of his earthly blessings and then he'll curse you to your face. He will speak evil about you directly and certainly. Because that's how human beings are. And for most human beings, I think Satan would be correct. Job is a little bit different. So we pick up the story with what Satan is allowed to do by the actual sovereign decree of God. And this is the unimaginable loss in the life of of Job. Starting at verse 13, it was a good day, a good day gone wrong. There's a touch of real life suddenness in the way that this, this story picks up. Look at verse 13. Now there was a day, and this is a repeated phrase almost to tell us along the narrative, like 
on this day something happened and another day something happened. And I think it's to kind of remind us that this day passes for most of the world like any other day. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. It was their custom to gather together according to chapter 1 verse 4 and to celebrate. It's probably birthdays is probably our best guess. But they would get together uh, periodically and they would go through the seven brothers in their different homes. The sisters would be invited and all the kids, all the siblings would get together and hang out. And they'd have a little party. There, there's no indication that anything was sinful or anything was wrong. They just celebrated. It was a family that loved each other. And even as their adult kids grew up together and loved and cared for each other, they got together. In other words, it was a pretty normal good day. And it's always in the pretty good normal day that terrible tragedy may strike. I want you to realize something, and that's the cosmic insignificance of our individual tragedies. And I think that's part of the way that the narrative is built. There was a day. It wasn't a unique day. The sun didn't stop in the sky. You know, it wasn't blackened. Um, it was just a normal day. In fact, it was a day where the kids got together and they hung, hang out. And it was a day that, that gave Job great delight. And, and what, what verses 4 and 5 had told us is that this happens periodically. And Job, on his, on his part, as priest and spiritual leader of his household, he would go and sacrifice on their behalf. Just in case they have spoken or, or taken God lightly. In case they have cursed God. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they say some bad word at God but they, they think or speak lesser of him than he deserves. So this is an intentional part on, on, on his design so that he might, in an act of worship, might sacrifice for them. And I think, I think he is probably in preparation for this. But let me throw this in. There are some Old Testament scholars that interpret verse 4 and 5, and in particular, that idea that the days had run it's something like that. Hebrew can be difficult to translate. And so you have two options that either the days had run out, meaning that they had finished their feasting days and then Job would call them for a sacrifice or the day or the run of the days began. So it's either at the end of or at the beginning of. I, I'm, I'm just leaning towards because it just seems sensible to me that it's at the end of. But if those scholars are correct and it is at the beginning of their festivities together that Job goes and offers sacrifice, it would literally be the very day that he's going to offer sacrifice that all of this stuff unfolds. It, it is on a normal day, typically, when tragedy can strike. It's a good day gone wrong. And then the tragedies themselves. Overlapping tragedies in verses 14 through 19. I'll just list them out for you there. These overlasting tra tra tragedies. And I'll say a couple things. One is that the way that the author of Job has presented this, there is a steady and terrible cadence. There's that phrase already mentioned, right? Now there was a day, as if this day came, that day came, and with kind of a generality that tells us that it's like these kind of things can happen any day, any time, right? 
Verse 6, there was a day. Verse 13, there was a day. Chapter 2, verse 1, there was a day. The other thing that happens is that there is this phrase, I alone have escaped to tell you that we read already. At the end of verse 15, there's only one person that has survived to report this. At the end of 16, there's only one person that has survived to report this. 17, again, and 19, again, I alone have escaped to tell you. And that phrase and that cadence is followed immediately by while he was yet speaking in the beginning of verse 16, in the beginning of verse 17, in the beginning of verse 18, the guy, didn't, the guy before him bringing bad news, he didn't even get to finish his report and the next guy begins. That's what we mean by overlapping tragedies. Things keep happening over and over Report after report, so that all of this bad news and all of the calamity, all of the pain will rush in on Job in such a way that it happens to him in a matter of moments. Not in a matter of days or decades. He's not rehearsing, oh man, that was the worst year of my life. This has been the hardest two years, right? Of of this of this existence in this pandemic-riddled world. No. He can't even say this is the worst day of my life because he doesn't have time. Seconds after the next, piled on top of each other, all these things take place. Let me, I'm going to rush through this the, in terms of the, the, the description of the details of what is taken. But look at verse 14. It was on this day when he may very well have begun to offer a sacrifice. Maybe he was getting up to go. There came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. You're talking about a marauding theft, but the key is that they're marauding and they're probably opportunistic. This is somewhat random. It's completely unexpected and all the livestock is gone and all the servants are killed and only this one servant, right, is preserved so that he might bring this bad news. 500 yoke of oxen, and by yoke we mean pairs. They're yoked together. So you're talking about probably 1,000 oxen, 500 female donkeys, and there are probably male donkeys there as well, but maybe the female donkeys are, are, are more valuable. And it's probably double that. And all of that, as a huge number of them, are all gone. Your workforce, your farms, right? Your future... If we might translate that in terms of our world, right? Whatever, whatever potential earnings will come in the future, it's all gone. It's all gone. So you might, in a moment, think, "Oh, that's terrible," but at least we have, like, we still have thousands of sheep. And while that guy was still speaking, verse sixteen comes a report of a consuming fire. While he was yet speaking, verse 16, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. The fire of God is used in the Old Testament to describe lightning. But sometimes it might literally be fire from the sky. It's hard to know, like in Elijah's sacrifice at Mount Carmel, it says that the fire of God came down. It could be literally a pillar of fire, for all we know. That's the way I imagine it. But it could have been lightning as well. And that would be like God's fire from the sky. Regardless of which it is, a bolt of lightning or just flames coming down from heaven, 7,000 sheep and all the servants, they all died except this one, just one preserved so that he might run and report this tragedy. All right? 
to Job. So you go from human evil, marauding theft, to now natural disaster, right? Natural disaster in the sense that it is, it is, it is, is nature. It's, uh, it's the use of nature that has been um, the vehicle by which uh, all of these servants and the 7,000 sheep are gone. So, so, okay, your work farm animals, your future is gone. Your food, right? You, you eat much, you know, sheep. And uh, your, your clothing, your, your, all, all the, the, the immediate things that you had in plentiful supply are gone. So now that's troubling. And then third, verse 17, while he was yet speaking, there came another one. See, one on top of the other. The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels, took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So now human evil again. So you had human evil, natural disaster, and now human evil that has come. And this one's a little more organized. It's more of a heist. They break up, the Chaldeans break up into three groups so that they could properly and uh, intelligibly right, attack, kill, and steal 3,000 camels. So now the capacity of Job to at least continue in, this, in, in trade, in a mercantilism, that's gone as well. And at this point, these three things have ruined him in his earthly uh, existence, right? He's lost all potential future earnings. He's lost everything that is in the house or everything that he's built up. He's lost any capacity to trade with others. He has nothing, and his heart must be sinking. Can you imagine if you lost your job, you lost your house and your car, right? You lost, uh, you lost everything in your fridge, uh, and your credit cards are, are no longer usable, so you have no capacity to get your next meal. So you're wondering, what am I going to do? The, your heart would be sinking, and the fear and anxiety will come upon you. And if you're the head of a household, he must be thinking, how am I going to feed my family? What will their lives look like when we're all destitute? How can I keep those that are under my charge? How can I keep them safe? But you go from a sinking heart, a heart of anxiety and fear, to a broken heart. While that third person was still speaking, verse 8, there's a report of a deadly storm. There came another and said, Your sons and daughters are eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Job had no time to catch his breath. I don't think he even has time to feel the sense of fear and anxiety from losing everything in this earthly life. It would almost be comical, right? An SNL sketch where guys keep coming and the next guy comes and while they're finishing their report, another guy starts his report. Like it is so ridiculous that it is all happening within seconds of each other. But this is the most tragic loss of all. Seven sons and three daughters all gone by this wind that has broke through the four corners of the house. It doesn't mean that the wind kind of came at four corners. What it means is that the wind was so strong that all four of the pillars that hold up its roof, that the whole thing collapsed at once. And no one survived except for this one servant so that he could deliver Job this terrible news. You know, um, in the New Testament, when Jesus runs into the rich young ruler who's looking for eternal life, Jesus tells him, you need to give up all that you own. Come follow me, all right? And that was too much 
he walked away with great sorrow, the scriptures report, realizing that he's giving up something that, is, that may be eternally valuable, but he just had too much. Job, the currently richest man on earth, is not even offered such a choice. It's just bam, bam, bam. Like it just, it just in a manifold way, it, one after one after one, it's like wave after wave, he has lost everything that is his future, including his children. He literally has nothing that he owns and no one that he's supposed to use those things to care for. It is all gone. And the suddenness of this tragedy is accentuated by while one was speaking, yet another came. You know, just on a side note, you realize that there is, I know it's a difficulty, but there is some grace in illness, even in chronic illness, even in illness that results in the passing of our loved ones. Because, and I've, I've lost parents whose health was fading, but there is a grace in that. Because there's, there's time for, for you to at least think about what's going on. Your loved one has cancer or dementia or Parkinson's. There's time for you, a little time at least, to catch your breath to realize what's going on, to take it to the Lord, to spend some time with them, to express your care and affection for them, to pray for them, to share the gospel with them if, they, if that's what's, what's necessary, right? To, to do stuff, but compare that to sudden tragedy when someone gets a phone call in the middle of the night and they've lost their loved one in an accident or in an act of violence. There is some grace in that. Job lost everything in a matter of seconds. It wasn't over a long duration where he could think about this. His happy life is suffocated and extinguished in a matter of seconds. When it rains, it pours. That phrase doesn't do justice to what is happening here. And Satan, the adversary, he is very clever. His desire is to overwhelm Job with unimaginable loss. Sudden, swift, and irrecoverable. Well, that's the unimaginable loss that Job, the sufferer, is facing. But as a man of sorrow, the question is, how will Job respond? Man of sorrow. And there's two things. There's grief and there's worship. Look at Job's grief in verse 20. Then, meaning after, one, two, three, four reports, and everything that he cares about is gone. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground, and he worshipped. These things are part of a normal expression of the deepest grieving process in that time and in that culture. He arose, and the emphasis on that is that whatever he was doing, he stopped. Maybe he was offering sacrifice. Maybe he was in the middle of offering a sacrifice. He just leaves all that. The idea that he arose means that he just, he, he, he might have been sitting. Maybe he fell down in the midst of all these reports. Regardless, the idea, I think, is not so much literally that he got up off the ground. It may be, but it is more likely the idea to let us know that he responded physically. He didn't sit there. He didn't just continue. He didn't just stand there dumbfounded. He got up with a purpose. He arose to do something. And the first thing he does is grieve. He tears his robe. This is the outer garment that's worn over his tunic. And it was ripped as a gesture of immediate and terrible grief. 
He wept. He cried. He hurt. And he expressed it in the way that is, that is profound and meaningful in his day and culture. And then he shaves his head. This is part of the mourning ritual, right? The ritual of those that are mourning a loss of loved ones in that area. He shaves his head because in some ways there's some shame upon you that you would shave your hair, especially as as a Middle Eastern man, right? So he does that. He shaves off his hair to demonstrate how much and how serious he is about his grief and how his life has come to such terrible ruin. And then he falls on the ground, right? So he arose. He has a purpose. He tears his robe. He shaves his head. And he falls down. All of it understandable. All of it very human. Very serious and deep and abiding grief. What's surprising is the next phrase, is the last phrase of verse 20. And he worshiped. Is that what comes into your mind? If you think about the worst possible tragedies that could happen to you all in a cascading motion like a waterfall crushing your soul, right? Enough to where you're like, dude, I got to do something. You tear your robe, you shave your head, you fall on the ground, you're weeping, you can't think of what comes next. Is the first instinct to worship. And I got to be honest with you, most of us, it's not. But it's a testimony of what God had already said Concerning Job. In verse 8, this is what God says to Satan to get Satan to, to, to provoke him to, to desire to test Job's faith. And he says to Satan in verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. That is God's testimony of Job's character and faith. And God has proved right. Whatever else Job is as a human being in in fear and in weakness, he believes in a God that is the God of Scripture. In his heart, despite everything crumbling around him, he could look to God and believe, one, that God is and always is sovereign and in control. But two, that God is and always is a loving and good God. Without any knowledge of the heavenly counsel that had taken place, without any knowledge of God's affirmation of his soul and his character, without any knowledge of that, all he has is the data that's before him. Wave after wave, right, of, uh, uh, of unmitigated, terrible suffering. And yet, his faithfulness leads him to worship God in the midst of his grief. It's a testimony that he just believes who God is and that God has not lost control and that God still holds him and his eternity in his hands. How different from the why me, O Lord, right? What have I done to deserve this, O Lord, that we usually spout off whenever we find ourselves in a moment overwhelmed by painful loss, right? He goes to worship. That's Job's grief. And then verse 21, the expression of his worship. 
in terms of what he says. His worship is like a clinging to God and to God's sovereign goodness. Job speaks, and remember the scriptures affirm that we speak out of the overflow of our hearts. We tend to speak the things that we think or care about or we love or that we're thinking about. And Job speaks his theology, and his theology, what he believes about God, becomes his doxology, becomes words of praise, because what he believed about God was his foundation, regardless of what else is happening around him, even when nothing was left. So verse 21, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. You notice the repetition in that? He's saying that when I came into this world, when God created me, it's not like I had a lot. And when I go from this world, I will take none of it with me. It is an, it is an excellent reminder that we come in to this world with nothing. We will leave this world with nothing. And all the blessings and the good things that we experience in this world, they are temporary. They are not meant to be our eternity. They are not your eternal life. This is not the eternal joy and the gladness of your soul for all of eternity. Any blessing, as good as it is in this life, it is not meant for, to be forever. And then the second part is the contrast. He says the Lord gives, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. And while the first statement is an affirmation of the temporary nature of every good gift, the second is an affirmation that we are merely stewards and God is the only actual owner. He gets to give and he has a right as owner to take away. That's hard for us to believe just as prosperous, right? First world, Western civilization Christians. There's an element in us that believes that what we have, we deserve, we've earned, it's ours, it's mine. Job, who was the greatest man in the East, meaning he was the wealthiest, the most, most significant human being that the planet knows at that time, when all of it is gone, including his children, he humbly understands, his theology is sound to know that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights from whom there is no variation or shifting shadow that's james 1 17 and it is all god's to give and therefore in his sovereign lordship it is his to take away whatever else job was feeling he felt the weight of his loss yes but he always remembered that god was still god not job job was not god god was still god so he ends with a blessing. He says, blessed be the name of the Lord. And what's wonderful is it's the exact opposite of what Satan predicted he would do. Satan predicted that as soon as you take away his hedge, all the good stuff that you give him, you pour you know, prosperity, goodness, and blessing into his life. As soon as you take it away, he will curse you to your face. The Heavenly Father knew that he would not. And he proves his faith by saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. And it's not just that he is, he is blessing the name of the Lord. He's not just saying something that is blessed about God's reputation, meaning that he is saying something good about God. He is saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. The way that that's constructed, it'd be like me saying, would you bless 
The name of the Lord or the name of the Lord deserves blessing. There's a third person element to this where he is saying, if anyone should hear my story, may they look to the Lord and call him blessed because he still is God. He still is sovereign and he still is good and he is still my God. The reason for Job's worship was not based on all the good stuff that God gave him. The reason for Job's worship, the foundation of his looking towards God, was that God was worthy. And that's what shines out in the moment of his unimaginable loss. Listen, all of us know theoretically, right? All of us that are believers in the room, that our loved, our loved ones, they're not ours forever. And yet we sometimes act like God owes our children a blessed and good future. That it was us, right? A good marriage, a happy family, and enough so we can retire, you know, reasonably. We know that this is not ours forever, yet sometimes we settle in to act like this all belongs to me. And in, but when we are in our best spiritual and theological mind, mindfulness, we fully recognize that Job and us at some point will lose nothing that was supposed to be ours eternally. Isn't that true? He lost nothing that is supposed to be just for Job forever. And in the moment of his crisis, he recognized that the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, and his name should be blessed. One commentator says this way, he understands that all, his, all of his possessions and all his children were gifts from the Lord by nature of the goodness of God he gives, and it is therefore entirely his prerogative to take away as he sees fit, as and when he chooses. This is just part of God being God. Job's theology bleeds out from what he believes God to be. And so verse 22 affirms it. In all, that, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He saw God's hand in all of it. But he did not think that God has, has stepped beyond what is appropriate for God. He is God and Job is not. And it reveals what a man of deep faith genuinely looks like you know it would be astoundingly good story right an excellent parable if we just stopped here but there's so much more in fact even in job's life his suffering has not ended we know that god is sovereign we know that he is good and he's he has used these circumstances for great blessing in fact and that's the thing that we learn, that God often uses tragedy for the purpose of something that is good and excellent. Difficulties, suffering, in order to bring about something that is blessed. My brother and I, we often think about um, our life. We're, we're immigrants, and we came over to the States when I was like three, George was like five, right? Um, but from what we can piece together from what our parents told us in terms of their young life in South Korea, my dad, um, he, you know, he graduated a, an excellent college and he had a good job working at a bank. Uh, he was making good money. My mom was one of maybe at that time a couple hundred women that had graduated with a college degree. And so she was kind of a big deal, especially amongst her alumni and her friends, right? And so they had a pretty good set life. But for whatever reason, and we, we often wondered, well, well, why would you have an impulse? They desired to move to the United States. 
and try to start something there. So they did. We lived in South Central for years. And my mom, one of the few women in South Korea who had a degree, was working in the garment district in downtown, just sewing clothes for whatever, 10 hours a day. My dad could only get a job at like the local butcher. And sometimes he would cut himself because he didn't know how to work all this stuff, right? It was a difficult life. But the one thing that I praise God for, I would not wish that on any particular family member or friends, that they have difficulty financially, difficulty in terms of future, uncertainty and anxiety about everything and all the pressures that come with that. I wouldn't wish that suffering on anybody. But George and I always talk about if that, if that didn't happen by God's sovereign design, it's highly unlikely that any of us would have come to faith. Prosperity would have been there. It turned out my dad was part of this, uh, this huge bank that continued to grow, and you're probably an executive. We're probably rich. I've been looking down on you for, as a rich Korean man, <laughs> maybe starring in some Korean drama, right? But I wouldn't have faith in Christ, probably. Because the prosperity would make me think that I have all I need. And if you think about your own testimony, right, I think you'll find the same, that there was something that the Lord did, and often by means of some kind of difficulty, trial, suffering, that was a catalyst to you coming to faith. Oh, beloved, to to think that God allows bad things to happen because he is not in control is the opposite of the testimony of Scripture. And this is what Job is affirming for us from the get-go and throughout the rest of this book. He is trying to say that God is worthy and he's worthy of worship whether he gives you great blessing or he allows pain and suffering to enter into your life. He is in control. And because he is a sovereign God, And because he is a good God, we know that whatever suffering we have, at worst, it'll only last for this life. Everything is momentary, and eternity is in his hands. I I, I purposely named this the man of sorrow um, because that reminds us of Jesus Christ and how he suffered unjustly. We might say, man, do I deserve this? Jesus, for sure, didn't deserve his death. And yet his death is the vehicle by which we may be declared righteous in a holy God's eyes. He suffered so that we might be cleansed. And if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, what are you waiting for? To do something? To actuate something? To become something? You need to put yourself away and cling to the Savior who's willing to die and to demonstrate God's righteousness and his love for us in paying the full penalty and the weight of our sins so that we might have an eternity in the goodness of a God that can't help but being good. This is God's sovereignty in the midst of our suffering. And we'll come back to this later. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to teach us and to guide us and ask that you would uh, be gracious to each one in this room, that if there are some who have not turned to you in faith, who have not considered the greatness of a sovereign and absolutely loving God, that we would not define you based on your gifts, define you based on what good advantage you have given to us, 
and to redefine your love, but instead to embrace you as you are and to recognize that the creature owes or deserves nothing, but the creator deserves all the glory and worship. Lord, would you bless us to understand this well and to be prepared for whatever you send into our lives for good or for tragedy, that we might honor the name of the Lord and bless you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.